Good morning. Hey, it worked that time. Good to be with you guys today. Unfortunately, Nick could not be with us today, so y'all are stuck with us. But I think that'll be I think that'll be all right. I hope so anyway. We're really happy to be with you today. Let's uh let's read together the call to worship this morning. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord of hosts. I long and yearn for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh cry out for the living God. Go ahead. I can't read it. How happy are those who reside in your house, who praise you continually. Happy are the people whose strength is in you, whose heart are set on pilgrimage. Wow, I definitely can't read that. It says, better is one day in your house, Lord, than a thousand anywhere else. Uh, I hope you guys can read along, but I can't read it from up here. So, uh, it is so good to be in the house of the Lord. And I think in times like we are living in right now, it becomes that much more obvious how much we need our community, how much we need a family of believers, how much we need this time to come together and, and be not with just one another, but we come together with the express purpose of meeting the Lord. I hope this morning that he finds us here. Uh, The word tells us that he makes himself known as we worship him, as we praise him. I long this morning, I long this morning to be with him. David says at the end of that, that psalm there that it would be better to be a doorkeeper at the gate of the house of God than to dwell in fabulous tents with the wicked. I'm happy just to hold the door open if it means we get to stand in the presence of God this morning. Let's worship the Lord together.
Lord, make yourself known among us this morning. Lord, we, we love you and we praise you for your, your omnipresence, God, the knowledge that you're always with us, Lord. But we pray this morning for that, that special kind of presence, that, that manifest presence, that presence like, like when the cloud filled the temple and, and the priests fell on their face and all the people just fell down and worshipped, that kind of presence that, that overshadowed Mount Sinai, Lord, that kind of weighty presence manifest presence when you say I am here, I am here, I am here and we know that you're here with us God we long this morning to stand in your presence like that fill our worship this morning standing here in your presence in a grace so relentless I am by perfect love, wrapped within the arms of heaven, in a peace that lasts forever, sinking deep in mercy, see
life. Oh, he is my song. You are good. You're good.
we are defined by your love for us. Lord, that there's no other thing that that determines who I am. There's not some set of criteria, some standard the world would like us to meet that gives us worth or value or meaning. God, we're thankful this morning that who I am, my identity is one who's loved by you. What an overwhelming reality this morning, God. What a beautiful reality to live in this morning. I am loved by you and that is who I am. That is who I am. One who is loved. God, we thank you this morning that that we aren't orphans who have to sing for our supper. That we're beloved children. The apple of your eye. Your pride and joy. You are a good, good father. Oh, you are a good father. This morning as we... As we come in, in a time of family prayer, God, we, we are family because you are our Father. We are family because you said to each of us, come to me, be mine. There's no greater joy, there's, there's no greater reason to praise you this morning. So we lift our voices, we lift our hearts, we lift our hands, we lift our songs. God, we we praise you this morning because you're worthy of our praise. Lord, we can thank you all day long for the things you've done. Lord, this morning we just want to praise you for who you are. And we want to praise you for who you say I am. I am chosen, not forsaken. I am who you say I am. You are for me, not against me. I am who you say I am. I am who you say I am. Lord, we love you this morning. We love you this morning. We love you this morning. We love you. We love you. Lord, you are welcome here. We want you here. We need you here, God. Lord, we can't, we can't be satisfied with just coming in and going through the motions, just maintaining an order of service and singing songs and hearing a word. God, we, we want you here. We want you here. We need you here. God, we're desperate for your presence. There's no substitute for your almighty presence. We long for it. Lord, we just say together this morning, you are our God and we are your people. We love you. We praise you. We honor you. And all that's said and done this morning, may you be glorified. May you be lifted up. May we lift up Jesus that all men might be drawn to him. We magnify your name. And in the beautiful, powerful, precious, saving name of Jesus this morning we pray. Amen and amen. Y'all can be seated. Well, Brad is out of town this morning playing volleyball in Dallas. So he's probably got sand in his shorts and 
sweat on his forehead right now, but uh, I guess uh, I'll do announcements today. We have Wednesday night Bible study at 6 o'clock. Uh, Pastor Sanjay is leading us in a study of Hosea. If you didn't make it this Wednesday or didn't catch the Zoom meeting, you missed out. It was a beautiful time with the Lord and a great time of study, and I'm looking forward to our next our next uh, lesson together at 6 p.m. on Wednesdays. Um, seems like there was something else Jonathan told me to say, and I can't remember. Um, it'll be okay. We'll figure it out together. I have been without a ministry since December, and it feels like a really long way to get right here this morning. I just I just breathe a sigh of relief. This has been a weird journey for everybody this last few months, right? I never imagined that I'd be stuck waiting on a virus to let the world move again. <laughs> It's not something you foresee, right? Global pandemics aren't like, well, that might happen in March, you know. <clears throat> but I am so thankful, so thankful that you guys saw fit to bring us and allow us to minister to you. Um, if you if you haven't heard, our arrangement is a little odd, <laughs> maybe a little a little unique. Uh, my wife is also an ordained elder in the Church of the Nazarene, and um, along with this calling, which we received first, it was presented to us an opportunity to minister not only here but also in Crowley. And uh, talking with your board and with the district superintendent, it was decided that uh, I would be pastor here uh, as senior pastor, and Leslie was appointed as pastor in Crowley. And so we are living in Crowley and in their parsonage. And um, part of what we will be doing here will be with them. And, and I think that is, is beautiful. And I think that God has some real purpose in it. I think there's some purpose to the partnership. And I'm excited to see what that's going to look like as it, as it plays out. And so Leslie is going to be leading the congregation there. And I'll be leading the congregation here and and that means sometimes we're going to have to work together. There's going to be a little sacrifice, some give and take on both sides. That's why we're here at 10.30 this morning instead of 10 o'clock. That's why they were at church at 8.30 this morning instead of 9 o'clock. So um, I think we got the better end of the deal there. <laughs> That's just me. But um, so uh, they are making sacrifices and they are making changes and they... Are, are, are going above and beyond to try and facilitate our ministry here. And I hope we'll do the same for them. And I think that in the future, there's going to be a relationship between these two churches that helps us both. I think, I think we can bring things to one another that are of great value. And, and I'm excited to see how that plays out. And I ask you guys to be patient and consider it because we don't know how this is going to work. We've never done this before. So... I don't know anybody else who has, so I can't even ask around for advice. We're just trying to, like, feel around in the dark. Um, so we'll figure it out together. Is that fair? fair? All right. We'll figure it out together, but I do believe that God's hand is in it. 
and we wouldn't have done it if he hadn't said so. And, and I, I, I think he has something beautiful. I think he's going to build something beautiful, and we're all going to get to be in it together. And I'm excited for it. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to bring the word to you this morning, and um, I'm going to walk away from that thing before it screams at me. I don't know if you guys caught if you guys caught any of it as we were singing, but we sang a lot about identity this morning. We sang a lot about who God says I am. One of my one of my most I, I don't know fascinating discoveries uh, in studying the Word. I, I'll never forget the day I, I I really noticed it. You ever? You ever have that moment when you're reading something you've read a thousand times and then it's like, bam, it just hits you in the forehead and you're like, how did I never see that? Well, I, was, I was reading one day in the Gospel of John and all the other Gospels, okay, Matthew, Mark, Luke, they all tell us the story of the baptism of Jesus. And they tell us very explicitly, you know, Jesus goes to the Jordan, John's out there baptizing, Jesus goes down, John's like, uh, I can't do this. And Jesus is like, yeah, you can. And he goes in the water, he comes back up, heaven opens, God talks, the dove comes down. It's, it's all there, right? It's not there in John. That's not there. But what is there is we actually get an eyewitness from the horse's mouth testimony of John the Baptist about what happened that day. And I, I remember I was in my early 30s. The first time I really realized, wait, we have, we have John talking about that day? That's pretty incredible. And so I, I started to read it, and I'm, I'm not going to read it to you this morning because it's just kind of a, an intro point, but John says, I was out there, I was in the river, and I was there because the one who sent me told me to go to the river and start baptizing people. And that at some point, while I'm dunking people in the water and bringing them back up, the Holy Spirit is going to come down and He's going to tell me, this is the one. And then I'll know it's the Messiah. And then it's my job to tell everybody else that's the Messiah. So John tells us the whole reason that he ever went to the Jordan River in the first place And started baptizing people with this baptism of repentance. His whole public ministry was because God told him, go go get in the water and you just start dunking people until heaven opens and a voice comes and the Spirit comes down and then you'll know. That's the Messiah. The whole reason he was there doing it in the first place is because he was sent with a very, very specific calling. I mean, that is really... A narrow window, right? That's a, that's a slim target. Stand in this one river, preach this one message, dunk people in the water until heaven opens and the Holy Spirit comes down. That's a, that is a, you, you gotta thread the needle on that one, right? You can't paint that ministry with broad strokes. Like that is, that's kind of pointed. My purpose in saying all that is that God doesn't do things on accident. You know, John's mother was old and barren. She wasn't even supposed to have kids. 
And then John's dad was a priest, and not just any priest. He was a priest in the line of Aaron and in the line of Zadok, and he was a, 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 an important priest. He was, he was high enough ranking in the priestly system that he got to go into the holy place and light the incense on the altar, something that at his day might have been literally a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to walk in that room. And God sends an angel to him and says, you're going to have a son. And his wife gets pregnant and they have a son and, and, and John grows up. Now, if John's dad is a priest, what is John supposed to be? This is the way the system works. The son of the son of the son of the son of the son. At this point in human history, for over a thousand years, Aaron's sons and their sons and their sons and their sons have been priests and served at the temple. At 30 years old, their ministry was supposed to begin. They educate themselves up to 30. At 30, they go into temple work. Jesus and John... You see, they were in their mother's wombs at the same time, right? We remember that story? Mary finds out she's been filled with the Spirit and she has this immaculate baby. Her parents are embarrassed, so they send her to her faraway cousin's house. Because they don't know where this kid came from. When she gets there, she finds out that Elizabeth, even though she's old, is pregnant too. She's in her sixth month. So we know John's about six months older than Jesus. When does it say Jesus started his public ministry? We know that, right? It says he was about 30 years old. And when Jesus steps into his public ministry, where do we find John? Is he at the temple? Like he's supposed to be, the son of the priest who's supposed to start his temple work at 30? No, this guy is in camel hair and a leather belt eating bugs in the desert. He's not wearing priestly robes and an ephod. He's got no power. He's got no clout. He's got no authority. He's got no respect. He's considered a complete nut job. He lives in the desert by himself, breaks the whole system. It says everybody's coming to him from repentance. They're leaving Jerusalem where they're supposed to go and offer sacrifices. And they're coming to the desert to see this crazy man who has abandoned everything he was ever supposed to be to do the one thing God said to do. Dunk people in the water until the Holy Spirit comes down and then you'll know that's the Messiah. Now I'm going to preach now. That was all for free. God does not mess around with his people. And let me tell you something. There is not one person that has ever had had cells come together inside their mother's womb and start dividing and start growing, who God did not do that thing we call life on purpose. Not one. He tells Jeremiah, before I ever put you together inside your mother, I knew you. You see, because we're not, for no accident. I'm bald on purpose. I am not cool with that, but it makes lots of jokes and people laugh at me while I preach, so it's okay. 
You know, I, I didn't grow hair until I was like three. And then it started falling out when I was 22. It's like, really, God, I get like 18 years of hair and then nothing. But he said, I put you together. And I knew you. You see, anybody ever work with, with clay or do any kind of sculpture? Everybody's played with Play-Doh, right? You ever sit down with a lump of clay and you just start working with it and then before you know it, hey, look, there's a cat. No, that's not how it works, right? You never just blindly squeeze the Play-Doh and next thing you know, you, you've made it an alligator. It doesn't work like that. You have to decide in your mind how you're going to craft this thing and what it's going to be and how it's going to function and what it's going to look like and what its proportions are. Then you go about making it. And you know what that thing's going to be before you ever started. And God says, before I started putting you together, I knew you. It's not an accident. I want to talk to you this morning about calling, church. About calling. I want to talk to you about this this reality that Jesus is coming to us and he has something for you to do. He has something for you to do. And and, and it is specific. We, We talk a lot about the general will of God and there is a big overarching picture of what God wants His church and His people to be. But there is a purpose for you. You were put together inside your mother on purpose and for purpose. And He knew who you would be before He started. And He thought about all the little quirks that make you who you are. The things that you would like and wouldn't like. and the, 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 the things that would really get you fired up. And the things that would really annoy you. And he knew you. Then he made you. That's important. And he made you not on accident. He didn't put John inside his mother's womb so that he would just keep going with the same old, same old. No, he had a job. There was a reason he took in breath. You know, within, within a matter of months after Jesus coming out of the water, John is arrested and murdered. But he did his job. You see, because he saw the Spirit come down. And we read in, in, in the Gospel of John that the next day, Jesus, or a few days later, Jesus comes by and John spots him and he screams, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world! He makes sure everybody knows, That's the one! And people keep asking, Are you the one? Are you the one we've been waiting for? Are you the king who's going to save the world? And he keeps saying, It's not me. I'm not even worthy to tie his shoes. That's the guy. Then they arrest him. And he sends his boys to Jesus and he says, I know I'm about to go down, but I got to know, did I get it right? Are you the one? And Jesus says, you go back and you tell him this. The blind see, the deaf hear, the lame leap, the good news is preached to the poor. 
And tell them, tell them this. Blessed are the ones who aren't offended because of who I am. See, John was fine to die. He just wanted to make sure he'd fulfilled that thing for which God put him together in the first place. This morning I want to talk about a few different stories. And I'll try to go quick. We read in Mark 6, Jesus feeds 5,000 people. These stories, these stories I'm going to tell you about this morning are, are, are store, all stories of Jesus. They're all stories of Jesus. I told you guys the first time I was with you, I want to know him. If you want to know him, there's several books about him. Try reading them. Jesus, Jesus goes with his boys after John is beheaded because he's lost a friend and a cousin. Several of his disciples had previously been students of John. And they find out John's beheaded and, and honestly they're grieving. But people are surrounding them everywhere they go and so they can't stay where they are. It says they couldn't even have a meal and mourn together. So they try to go out to a deserted place. That's what the, that's what the Greek says, a deserted place. But the people notice them going down the seashore in their boat, and they recognize who it is. And by the time Jesus gets to this deserted place, there are thousands of people there waiting on him. And the disciples are not happy, but it says Jesus has compassion on them because he sees that they're like sheep with no shepherd. And so he goes up on a hill. He teaches them all day long. It gets to the end of the day. Jesus and the disciples are like, hey, this is literally what it says. The disciples come to Jesus and they're like, hey, you need to send these people away. You need to send these people away. They've got to go home. They've got to get something to eat. We're in the middle of nowhere. And Jesus says, you feed them. And the disciples, being people, say, Jesus, do you see how many people are here? There are, there are 5,000 men, not counting women and children. I mean, you could estimate there might be as many as 20,000 people gathered around this day. It says it, it would take more than a year's worth of wages to give everybody a bite. In Mark 6, verse 38, Jesus speaks up and he says, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. I want to ask you this morning, church, what do you have? Do you do an inventory very often? I think we do an inventory really often of all the things that are against us. And that's where the disciples start, right? Yeah, but look at all these people. We're going to count all the people. There's too many of them. We're going to count all the money. There's not enough. The need's too great. It's too late at night. We're too far away. There's not any bread. What are we going to... Jesus says, I want you to look for something else. I want you to do an inventory, but I want you to look for what you do have. I want you to look for what you do have. Would you, would you just go and see? And they come back, and I, I'm sure that they're thinking, okay, well, now we'll send these people away. Because all we got is five dinner rolls and a couple fish. We read in one of our other Gospels that they actually say two small fish. Okay, can we send these people away now, Jesus? And Jesus is like, perfect. <laughs> Just what we needed. 
And he gives thanks to God. Can you imagine you've got to feed 20,000 people? You've got five dinner rolls and a couple of small fish, and you're like, God, thank you for meeting our needs. You've given us everything we could ever hope for. But see, we're too busy doing the inventory on what we don't have. To be thankful for what we do have. What do you have? Jesus asked. What do you have? We flip over and, and, and Mark 14. Jesus is at the house of a man named Simon the leper. And he's, he's important. He was a Pharisee. I'm guessing, this is pure speculation, okay? This is not biblical truth. Don't hold me to it. I don't know it. But I'm guessing that this man is called a leper. He probably had leprosy at some point, And... Now he doesn't, because people are at his house. I don't know this, but Jesus is at his house, and he used to have leprosy, and now he doesn't have leprosy. I'm guessing Jesus probably had something to do with that, because leprosy doesn't go away. Unless Jesus is around. But he's at the house of Simon the leper, and, and he's having this fancy dinner, and this woman comes in from the street, and she is... Not a reputable woman. We'll just leave it at that. But she comes in and she has this jar of perfume and she breaks it and she pours it on Jesus' feet and she she cries, washes his feet and she dries them with her hair and it says the fragrance of the perfume fills the house. But the people that are sitting at the table are furious about it. And they're like, oh, what a waste! Doesn't she know how expensive that perfume is? They could have sold it. They could have fed every poor person in town. We know from some of our other Gospels, when she comes in, they start nudging each other and they say, well, this guy's not much of a prophet, is he? If he knew what kind of woman that was, he wouldn't let her anywhere near it. Why would Jesus have those people around? We used to pick up kids in this neighborhood in the city we lived in before we came here. And I got asked over and over and over by church people, why do you pick up those kids? Well, because they need Jesus. Because they're hungry, literally. And we feed them. Mostly because you wouldn't. And now their neighborhood's a disaster. And the crime rate is, the, the, the rate of violent crime in their neighborhood is about four times higher than New York City. Probably because all of you said, I'm not picking up those kids for generations. And here they are at the table with Jesus and they're like, why? Why would you mess around with that lady? Look at what you didn't get to do. See, now they start a different kind of inventory, right? Well, look at all the ministry we could have done if we hadn't wasted it on Jesus. I'm serious, church. We're guilty. Why would we lavish love on Jesus? The poor people need something to eat. 
Poor people do need something to eat. But Jesus says there will always be poor people that need fed. Worship me when you get a chance. And and he he says here in verse 8 of chapter 14, I think it's going to be on the screen for you. He says, she did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare me for burial. I, I want us to focus on that first sentence. She did what she could. You see... This woman couldn't have Jesus at her house to have a big fancy supper. She might not have had a house. She sure couldn't afford to feed 13 men. They probably wouldn't have gone to her house if they'd been invited. She couldn't do what Simon was doing. But what she could do was wash his feet. What she could do is just wash the dirt off his feet. He says, Simon, I came to your house and you didn't even have a servant come and dust my feet. This woman has has washed them with her tears. She dried them off with her hair. You couldn't even be bothered to offer a towel. You see, she, she just did what she could. See, church, sometimes Jesus says, just want you to do what you can. I just want you to do what you can. And so I asked this morning, if, if you're on purpose, if He knew you before He put you together, if you really believe that God's call is specific, that it's intentional, that you're intentional, what can you do? Stop taking inventory of all the things you're not. Stop taking inventory of the things that that you think you might do if you weren't in this circumstance. Stop taking inventory of the things that you don't have. What can you do? What do you have? Because you're not on accident. You have something. He knew it before He put you together. What do you have? What do you have? flip over to Mark chapter 3 and we see the story Jesus goes into a synagogue on the Sabbath day and everybody's mad at him because he's always doing bad things on the Sabbath, right? Everybody's always upset with Jesus because he he just I love Jesus for this Jesus does not like stupid rules Mm, can't we all just say amen to that? Jesus does not follow stupid rules just because they're a rule If they're stupid, he just says, hey, that's stupid, and does the right thing anyway. Right? And here he is on the synagogue, and it says, in the synagogue on the Sabbath day, everybody's watching him to see what he's going to do. And there's a man there with a shriveled hand. Now, I want us to stop here for a second. This man has a perfectly functional body, with the exception of one hand. Right? But when we talk about this guy, we don't say, there was a man there with two good legs. Right? There was a man there with tremendous eyesight. There was a guy there with hearing like a bat. No! We say there was a man with a shriveled head. He's defined by the one thing about him that's broken. Broken. 
He's defined by the one thing about his body that doesn't quite work right. And Jesus asked the question, what's right on the Sabbath? I know your stupid rules, but what's right on the Sabbath? Is it right to do good or to do harm? And it says now everybody's really watching close to see what he's going to do. And he calls the man up. He calls the man up because nobody will answer him. When he says, is it right to do good or to do harm? Nobody will answer and in verse 5, he says this. He says, he looked around at them in anger, and he was deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. Deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. Because all they see is a shriveled hand. And a stupid rule that limits what God can do on this day in this place. And he says to the man, stretch out your hand. He could have told this guy dance a jig and he could have done it. Right? He could have told this guy do some jumping jacks, he'd have been all over it. He could have said, hey, sing a song for us. He tells him to do the one thing he can't do. He's got a shriveled hand! That's his whole idea. We don't know his name. His whole identity is his hand doesn't work. And Jesus tells him to do the one thing he's incapable of. Stretch out your hand. Look at the next sentence. He stretched it out. He stretched it out. He stretched it out. It's the one thing he can't do. And Jesus says, do the only thing your body will not allow you to do. And this guy, I've probably been like, uh, excuse me, have you seen this thing? It's not really how shriveled hands work, Jesus. Shriveled means they don't stretch out. I don't know if you missed the dictionary lesson or... He stretched it out. He stretched it out. I want to jump, I want to jump with you over to John chapter 5, and this one, this one really gets me. I'm gonna, Jesus is, is, is cruising by the temple one day, and he comes across a man who is invalid. He can't walk. He has been this way for 38 years. 38 years is a long time. I just turned 38 years old like three weeks ago. For my whole life, this man has been unable to walk and has been sitting in the same spot every day begging for help. For 38 years. Now, he's in a special place. He's at a place where there's this pool called Bethesda. Bethesda is a word that means house of mercy. And this pool, it's a, it's a natural spring-fed pool, and there was this belief among Jews that every once in a while this pool would get stirred, and it, it, 
it literally did. The, the pool would start to, to bubble and churn. And, and if you made it into that pool while the water was active, you would get healed. So for 38 years, this man had been sitting at the edge of this pool. And every time the water was stirred, he'd say, Somebody get me in the water! Somebody get me in the water! Somebody get... But he's invalid. He's stuck. Now again, we, we don't know anything about this guy except what he can't do. Right? doesn't say there was a man sitting by the pool of Bethesda with a brilliant mind. With a tremendous singing voice. No, he just can't walk. His whole identity. He's an invalid beggar. And Jesus comes across him and he says, it blows my mind. Jesus comes to him and he says, do you want to get well? Do you even want to get well? And the guy starts this spiel. Oh, yeah, of course I want to get well, but when the water stirred, I don't have anybody to help me. I've been sitting here for 38 years, and, and every day, you know, every time I don't have oh, nobody help. The enemy of our souls loves a victim. If he can make you the victim, well, then it's not your fault. It's somebody else's fault, and so you don't have anything to fix. There's nothing you can do about your situation. You're just a helpless victim. Oh, of course I want to get well, Jesus, but nobody's here to help me. For 38 years, you couldn't find one person willing to help you up? Really? Jesus says, do you even want to get well? This guy's like, yes, yes, I want to get well. But I can't get in the pool. Nobody will help me in the pool. Chapter 5, verse 8. Jesus says to the man, or excuse me, uh, yeah, 5, 8. He says, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. It's the one thing he can't do. It's the one thing he can't do. But you see, when Jesus hears this guy and, and just constantly saying, oh, I don't have any help. I don't have anybody's... I, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't. Jesus says, just get up. You see, this man believed he could be healed. Right? He believed his God, Yahweh, the King of Israel, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, I am who I am, he believed that God could heal his body. That's why he was sitting at the pool. But there was one more thing required to get that healing. He had to do the thing he thought he couldn't do. That would have been getting in the pool until Jesus walked up, right? Maybe if he had fought and scratched and clawed and drug his dead legs over the wall and into that pool... He might have gotten his healing a lot sooner. But Jesus finds him sitting in his, in his sadness. Sitting in his victim's mentality that I don't have anybody who will help me. And me being here stuck like this is, is everybody else's fault. 
And Jesus tells him to do the one thing he could not do. Get up. And here's the fascinating thing about this story and the story with the man with the shriveled hand. I don't know if their healing happened when Jesus said it or it happened when they did it. You see, because this guy could have said, I can't get up. Didn't you just hear me? I told you I've been sitting here for 38 years. It doesn't matter what your ailment is. If you have been unable to walk for 38 years, you can't get up. It's called atrophy. Your muscles just cease to function. He couldn't do what he was asked to do. And I don't know if the moment Jesus said get up was the moment that his body was strengthened or the moment he was obedient and just did the thing that he couldn't do just because Jesus said it. I don't know. I don't know if that hand would have stayed withered if that guy had just tucked it back in his pocket and was like, you know it's the Sabbath, right? Can we get together again on Sunday? I don't know if it was the words or the obedience that brought healing. I'm not sure. But I do know this. If that man had not stretched out his hand, his hand wouldn't have been stretched out. I do know this. If that man had not stood up, he'd still be sitting there at the side of the pool. Waiting on somebody to help him. But Jesus comes along and he's like, wait, you wanted help? Okay, I'm here. I'm here to help you. Get on up and walk away. This morning, church, God has a call for you. It is specific. It is intentional. It is on purpose. It is beautiful and glorious. Sometimes he's going to ask you just to do what you can. He's going to ask you, what do you have? What's in your bag that I gave to you? What what do you carry around with you? What do you have at your disposal? Can you just do what you can? It's all I need from you. Just do what you can. Use what you got. And then there are other times, church, when this call is going to come and he's going to say, oh, that thing that cripples you, that thing that has identified you as your greatest point of failure and weakness and brokenness, that thing that everybody's going to look at when you stand up in front of them and say, well, he's not good enough. That's the very thing I intend to use to bring glory to myself. Will you put that thing on display and let me do with it what I want to do? Sometimes he's going to ask you to do what you can. And other times he's going to ask you to do the one thing you can't. My my charge, church, this morning. Come prepared. Take the inventory. See what you got in there. It might look like not nearly enough, but Jesus is thankful. It might look grossly insufficient. Everybody else may laugh at it. Other people might even be offended by it. But Jesus says it's beautiful and it's for me. You know what Jesus says to that woman who pours her tears on his feet? He says, everywhere they tell my story for the rest of human history, they'll talk about her. And I don't care if none of you guys like it. 
What she did was beautiful. What do you have? You all got something. Because he made you that way. And he knew it before he ever put you together. Where's that point of crippling weakness that the enemy constantly uses against you to tell you you can't, to tell you you shouldn't even try, to tell you the world's trying to hold you down, that nobody cares, that nobody will ever help you, that you're stuck, that you can't get out? Jesus wants to fix that too. And he wants to use that and make it part of his story. You see, this isn't a story about an invalid man or a man with a shriveled hand. These are stories about Jesus. These broken people just get to be a part of his story. You see, he calls people who have something to offer, and he calls people who have nothing to offer, and they're all part of his story. And in both cases, and on all these stories we've talked about this morning, this is what I really want you to see. What these, even those who had a little something, once it came to Jesus, it became something else altogether. Once they brought it to Jesus. See, she thought she just had a little bit of perfume and was going to be nice and help him after, you know, walking, you'd smell kind of bad. But Jesus says, no, she's, she's anointing me for burial. And, and, and when Jesus goes into the grave, church, we know when Jesus goes into the grave, that burial is what brought salvation and hope and resurrection to all of us. Oh, you only got a sack lunch. Watch what I can do. Our little bit goes a long way with Jesus. It goes a long way with Jesus. You know what the greatest tool of evangelism in the world is? Your story. Your testimony of that broken thing that Jesus fixed. Your story of, I was shriveled and he said, stretch it out. I waited for decades for some help and finally he came along and I could just get up and go. Woo! That's my story, church! I'm preaching better than y'all are acting this morning. Y'all gotta learn to talk. I'll, talk, I'll, I'll preach shorter if y'all talk back. How's that? Y'all, that's a lie. I won't. <clears throat> He's calling you. We're going to spend the next few weeks together talking about the callings of Christ that Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 4. And it's a beautiful model for what the church is supposed to be. But I wanted to just, I wanted to get you excited this morning about the reality that Jesus has something for you and you've got something to offer Him. And maybe even your most broken, most weak thing is the one He wants to use the most. Maybe that's the very thing that will bring him the most glory. Bring what you have. Bring your brokenness too. 
Sometimes he's going to ask you to do what you can, and sometimes he's going to say, do what you can't. Either way, it's all for him. And he made you for it. He made you for it. And he is excited to watch you do it. Oh, I think God was so happy that day Jesus came up out of the water. I think about it, guys. John did what he was born to do. And as Jesus' head bursts out of the water and it drips down off his beard and, and there's John standing in his soggy camel hair, right? God says in Mark, God rips heaven open. That's what it says. God tears heaven open and he shouts with a loud voice, This is my son! I'm so happy with him! Oh, God is excited when we do what he put us here to do. Oh, he'll open heaven. He'll speak into our existence. The Holy Spirit will fall and remain. Lives will be changed. People will start shouting, Behold the Lamb of God! What do you have? What do you need him to do for you? Bring it all. He's calling you. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. We just say this morning, here we are. All that you've made us to be and with all of our brokenness. Lord, I just pray on behalf of Nouvelle Church this morning. Here we are. Send us. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.